All right, good morning, everybody. So we've got a lot to deal with. Um, this is an, an encouraging yet complex and precise passage. Uh, today is going to be a bit of a lesson in hermeneutics, uh, so the, the discipline of interpretation and exegesis. So uh, in the past, I've been accused of trying to put 10 pounds of theology in a five-pound bag. So initially, I was going to preach on seven verses, so I wouldn't put 20 pounds of theology in a five-pound bag. We're only going to do four this morning. This is going to be a uh, two-parter because there's, uh, by the end of it, I was going to deal with missions, evangelism, prayer, all the doctrines of grace, uh, the timing of, revel- the, uh, of special revelation. So uh, we'll do that in two weeks. Um, but what I want you to see this morning in these first four verses, uh, the discipline we often do, the repeated words, they, they give us the, the emphasis, the, re- the repetition of God and all and people and saved and Savior and, and truth. There is almost a, a, a formula for ministry here. God saves sinners by the truth of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Uh, and, but we must define some terms, and uh, that's kind of part of our hermeneutical exercise. Uh, this is one of those passages, along with many others in the, in the scriptures, where the, the Bible is full of seeming contradictions and paradoxes. At first read, this may Uh, Maybe you're not aware of this. Maybe this has bugged you your entire life. But at first read, passages like this tend to cause us a little bit of consternation. Things in Scripture we struggle with, like divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility. Like who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? Yes. But there is probably none more divisive among Christians than the scope of salvation and the atonement. And the work of election and the problem of reprobation. Who will be saved and who won't? This probably, more than anything, divides uh, well-meaning Christians. And so there's a lot of things we've got to deal with, and hopefully we'll make some sense out of it this morning. So in First Timothy, we're in chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We will pray and then dive in. First of all, then, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, To us in this room, who you have granted saving faith, you are Father. But first, you are Savior. In your perfect plan, you knew us in our sin and our rebellion before the foundation of the world. You knew we could not save ourselves. You knew we could not keep your law. And so you sent your Son that he might redeem an obstinate and wayward people, that his blood might be the covering for them. How awesome you are. How gracious you are. How loving you are. How good you are. What a beautiful reminder of the goodness of our God, the mercy of our God, 
that he saves from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Lord, may we have that heart and may we have that desire. May we be fervent in prayer for the lost. May we be fervent in evangelism and discipleship. May we be fervent in encouragement and challenge and conviction. Because we are standing here today because you saw fit for others to pray for us. To witness to us. We praise you for our salvation and we praise you to receive all glory and honor for it. And Lord, I also know there are some here this morning who are lost, trusting in themselves, chasing after gods and idols of their own making, whose inheritance is hell. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you would open their eyes this morning, that your spirit would quicken them, bring them to life, that they may hear the good news of Jesus Christ on receptive ears for the first time, that they would turn from their sin, that they would be saved from the wrath to come, and that we may celebrate with them that our God saves sinners. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so one of the things I want you to know about 1 Timothy, especially as we get into the book proper, this is the oldest book of church order that we have. If you think about it, when we're, as, as we walk through this, and it's probably going to be a lot longer than I thought it w- we would. We'll be here for a while. Um, but step by step, Paul is addressing the gathering in the local church, the doctrine the prayers, the roles of men and women, the roles of elders and deacons, the ministry and the uh, gospel message that they, that they preach, how you handle those who are hurting, how you deal with leaders, how you deal with, with, with sin. Um, so we're going to work through a lot of practicality within the local church. So um, first things first, he says, first of all, This is first in order, but also first in prominence. First of all, verse 3, Timothy is urged to stay in Ephesus. Now he is urged to pray in Ephesus. First of all, then. Don't skip over the little word there. Then. What does the then tell us? Then. Assuming you remembered and listened to everything that came before. Then, all right, now that we've made sure that there is one true doctrine, there is one true Savior, that it is Christ who saves sinners, I am chief among them. There is a war you are waging against false doctrines and those who will bring division within the church. And if they do, warn them and then remove them. Now that you have the doctrinal foundation, now that you know what the church is based on, the work of Jesus Christ, God our Savior, Let's talk about prayer. Because everything we do in the church cannot be apart from that. We protect the doctrine, we hold the faith, we wage the war, but our prayer is inextricably linked with our doctrine. That is why he goes into Christ as mediator with this section. That is so important, we're going to spend all of next week talking about Christ the mediator. But I want us to think about prayer for a moment. 
What happens in prayer? What do we do in prayer? What happens with us? I think many people think that we pray because we're doing God a favor. Okay, God, now I've got to come before you today. Or um, I know you're waiting to hear from me, so here I am. Aren't you happy? God doesn't need us. He's not lacking anything from us. Prayer is for us. Prayer reminds us that we are not the end-all, be-all. Prayer must be and is a humbling exercise. You are great. I must come before you because I am not. Prayer is a recognition that our God, who is great and who is over all things, is also near. And he hears his people. And he loves his people. And he desires that his people come before them. You know what prayer does? It moves our heart and our mind. Does God answer prayers? Absolutely. Is God waiting for our prayers before he figures out what he's going to do in response to us? Of course not. But the work of prayer is mostly within us, a recognition of our great God. And think about the privilege that the God of the universe who created all things spoke the world into existence, made you in his image, desires to communicate with you invites you in to speak with him. Our God is a perfect union and communion of three persons. Throughout all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect union of purpose, perfect love and expression, and when we are united with Christ, when the Spirit comes and dwells with us, we are invited to be partakers, as Peter says, of the divine nature. Do not make prayer some empty rote exercise. Don't be like many pagans who say their, their prayers before they go to bed because they always have and they never give it a second thought. We get to go before the throne of grace. We have a high priest who can identify with our weakness, who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. We are invited as children to go before our Father and ask and thank and cry and complain and rest. This is why Paul says, don't forsake prayer. For everything else that is to come, make sure it is done in prayer. So to help us here, uh, I want to look back at a couple stalwarts of prayer. Um, I love reading biographies, and I love biographies of missionaries and martyrs particularly. Because every time I read them, I realize I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know if I'm a Christian after reading some of these guys. Two of my favorites, Hudson Taylor and George Mueller. So these are, these are contemporaries. George Mueller uh, ministered to orphans, amazing in his prayer life. Never asked for money. We need $200 to feed these orphans. Lord, we need $200 by lunchtime. I know you are a God who hears prayers and they never went without. 
They never missed a meal. Hudson Taylor goes into the, the, the first missionary into inland China. The Lord puts a desire in his heart from a young age for these people he had never seen and never met. And says again and again, I will give my life for China. Another man who his prayers are so fervent and so faithful. It is amazing how often God, I'm like, are we talking to the same God? Because I don't pray that way. I wish I had a grain of faith that these two men had. So first, Hudson Taylor. I love this. He says, do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. Oh, man. How many of us are guilty of that? Begin the day with the word of God in prayer and get, first of all, into harmony with him. What a great picture. How many of you have stepped out of the house and your instruments are completely out of tune? I haven't talked to the Lord today. I haven't opened his his word. Probably the first thing I did was open YouTube. I've been way too guilty of that. And I'm out of sync. I'm trying to go out into the world. I'm trying to be a a witness. I'm trying to perform this, this great solo. And I sound like a fool. Because I'm doing it all in my own strength. And I'm doing it all out of tune. Begin the day. These great men, if I encourage you, if you've not read um, the autobiography of either men, read them. They are great reads. They are encouraging reads. They are convicting reads. And the Lord used them in a mighty way, but look at what they both have in common. Now here's George Mueller. In order to enjoy the word, we ought to continue to read it. And the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. For the less we read the word of God, the less we desire to read it. And the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. Amen to that. This is one of those things so many people struggle with. I don't feel like reading. I don't like reading. I don't know how to pray. Well, do you read? Do you pray? This is something where even just forcing yourself, I tell people, wake up in the morning and start with, start with just 10 minutes. And say, I'm going to commit to 10 minutes this week. I guarantee you, if you were in the Lord and you get up desiring to be obedient, next week will be 15, and the week after will be 20. And now you'll be setting your alarm an hour earlier just so you can get more time in the Word and more time with the Lord. Hudson Taylor would wake up two hours before sunrise without an alarm clock, light a candle, and sit in the corner and pray for the lost in China. This is why when you walk in our fellowship hall, we have on the wall the simplicity of the early church, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And what happens a couple verses later, the Lord adds to their number. There is no shortage of books and methods and five steps to how to become a greater Christian and build a bigger church. But God has four steps that he's done in all of his church, throughout all of history. The word of God, the fellowship of the believers, breaking bread, the Lord's table, or your dinner table, both apply, and prayers. Day after day, the saints being in each other's lives and being in the word of God and being in prayer, and the Lord blesses that. It seems like it's too simple. And it's beautiful that it's so simple. 
And so when Paul gets in here, first of all then, I might get off on a few soapboxes this morning, forgive me. Um, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Let me tell you exactly what each one of these words mean. I read probably 10 commentaries this week, and everyone gave a different answer. So I'm not going to either. Here's what we do know. All types of prayers. This is the point. There's, there's debate about which each one of these is in Greek, which one of them is re- referring to. Um, everyone's got their own idea. The wise ones say we don't know. But <laughs> Paul says all types of prayers. Do we pray for ourselves? Yes. Do we pray for others? Yes. Do we thank the Lord? Yes. Do we petition the Lord? Yes. Do we cry out to the Lord? Yes. Do we, do we, do we pray for forgiveness? Yes. As we said this morning in our intercessory prayer, the people of God are a kingdom of priests. The role of a priest is to bring people before God. Intercession means to stand in line with. I am putting myself next to you before you. You're lost. I'm going to stand on your behalf before the Lord. Save my neighbor. Save my cousin. Save the random guy with the beard in downtown Sanford. Save him. We make specific requests for ourselves, for others. We exercise our priestly duty, and we do it with thanksgiving. God, you are a great God. You saved me. You saved many others. Continue the work of salvation. We want to see the lost saved. We should be a grateful people. Because God has redeemed us, and we should be grateful because our God invites us to communicate with him. I love what Paul says in uh, Philippians 4. Many of you are familiar with this, but I want you to see the flow of Paul's reasoning here. A beautiful rhythm for the believer. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. Why does he say again? Because we struggle at being joyful. He didn't say complain again. I say complain. That we could do. But rejoicing, we need another reminder. Let your reasonableness be known to all. So there's a joy in the heart that is known to all, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Your God is not far off. Your God knows you. Your God is with you, and he will never leave you and never forsake you. So, therefore, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, same idea, same prayers, or same same words. Let your requests be made known to God, and here is the fruitful outpouring of faithful prayer The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the rhythm of the believer. We have been saved. We rejoice in our salvation because our God is at hand. So we know we can go to him with anything. He puts this peace in our hearts, which just passes understanding, which does not make sense. And the more we do this rhythm, as Hudson Taylor was talking about, as George Mueller was talking about, it is Christ who guards our hearts and our minds. The one who saved us sanctifies us. 
He says, my desire is that I have overcome this world for you, and I want you to have joy because I overcame it on your behalf. I want you to pray for me because I went before you. Because I stand as your high priest. I stand before your father. I will guard you. I will keep you. And my mighty right hand. We'll get into this way more of this next week. But think about that when we pray. We have access to the throne of grace through Christ. And we do it in all things. So if we're to pray in all things, therefore, we should pray for all people. So, um, all people. Let's break this down a little bit. Uh, Greek students, you'll notice that the same phrase is, is here and in verse 4. Pos, anthropos. All people, all men, both in the plural. So, what does this mean? Why even bring this up? Because most likely there's a spirit of exclusivism in the church in Ephesus. There's no shortage of people who uh, think we only pray for, for some or other. But Paul is trying to remove distinction here. We pray for all people, whether they're high, the rulers, whether they're low, whether they're rich, they're poor, they're male or female, they're Jew, they're Gentile. So we must define when we read all. Who do we pray for? Pray for all people without partiality. No one is beyond our God. It can't mean without exception. What does that mean? This is not one of those Bill Clinton moments, like what, what, is, what is the definition of is, is. Um, no, we, we, we must define this. Because if you expressly, literally read this, we pray for all people, you're not being faithful unless you pray for each person individually. You could never be expected to pray for every person on the face of the earth throughout time. Not all people, we must define our all. But we pray for all peoples indiscriminately. So we, don't pr- we, we can't pray without exception, but we can pray without distinction. You see the difference? We can't pray without exception, but we can pray without distinction. And so this is why we come together every week in intercessory prayer. Prayer is important. People ask, how is, this, how is your church growing? Like, what are you doing? How are your people growing? Well, we open the word and we pray. We pray for all people at all times in all ways. And so sometimes there are very sobering moments when we have lost someone and we cry together. Some moments like this morning were a lot of fun and we can laugh together. But it is always going before our great God and praying for the lost. Praying for healing. Praying for encouragement, praying for restoration, praying for reconciliation, all these things. So I encourage you to join us, 9.30, sharp. I think some of you think it starts at 9.45. Let me set the record straight here. It's 9.30. And if you have no kids and no mortgage, you have no excuse. Even if you have a mortgage, you have an excuse. Some of you can wake up early for class or work or real early for a day at the beach, but you struggle Working up on the, waking up on the Lord's Day to gather for prayer. We get to go before our God, but you'd rather be on the other side of your pillow. Just saying. <laughs> um, 
Let's look at Hudson Taylor one more time. And if you think that, well, I just don't, I can't pray like this person, I can't do this. Hudson Taylor, the Lord sent in the middle of China with no help. Think, oh, he's got to be a great man of faith. Struggles with insecurity and anxiety. He says, I myself, for instance, am not especially gifted. And I'm shy by nature. Many of you can, re- can uh, resonate with that. But my gracious and merciful God and Father inclined himself to me. And when I was weak in faith, he strengthened me while I was still young. He taught me in my helplessness to rest on him and to pray even about little things in which another might have felt able to help himself. Let me be honest with many of you. You struggle in prayer because you think way too highly of yourself. You think, I got this. I'll only go to God for the big things. But then you develop a pattern in your life where you don't go to God for anything. The Lord uses those mightily who rest on his might. So, why such an emphasis on prayer here? Why even, why am I spending so much time on all people? Why is Paul saying all people? And why does he say all people again in verse 4? Let's talk about prayer for a moment. In every era, that exclusivism, I'm going to define that a little bit. Exclusivism thinks that I'm the only one or we're the only ones who have the, the, the truth and everyone else is on the outside. In every era of history, there have been Christians who neglect or refuse to pray for different peoples. An idea that jumps off the page, Jonah hated Nineveh, went the opposite direction so that they would not be redeemed. The Jews, in Paul's context, did not want the Gentiles to receive the gospel. They thought that they were were better. They refused. Orthodox Jews to this day still pray, thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a woman or a Gentile. Still pray to this day. The Gnostics that that creeped into the church, they didn't think that the uh, unenlightened, those who hadn't reached the, the, the spiritual heights of their understanding were worthy of the kingdom of God. So they would just pray for those who had understanding. In the, in, the, in the pre-missions world, before William Carey went out, the argument for those who wanted to send missionaries out to unreached peoples from very highbrow Europeans was that these uncivilized pagans don't have the capacity for salvation. In our own history, slave owners in the South refused for their slaves to learn how to read or to gather for worship because then they would realize, I'm free. Christ is my master, not you. And so they refused to seek salvation for people made in the image of God. And so this is why Paul says all people, and then he goes into for kings and all who are in high positions. Notice the all here again. All positions. If you are really involved in politics, if you live and die on your party or your particular issue, and you get so mad at the other side, it makes it hard to pray. I know I've been guilty of those who I see doing ridiculous, wicked things, and I don't want to pray for them. Paul says here, pray for all kings and all those in authority. 
I know we struggle praying for the leaders we don't like because most of our leaders are pagans. You know what the leaders were in Paul's day? Pagans, all of them. You know who was ruling over Rome in Paul's day? Nero. Burning Christians at stakes, feeding them to lions. One of the most wicked men in all of history, and Paul says, pray for him. Not just him, but the Herods and the Agrippas and the governors and the Tetrarchs in every layer. And so we, presidents and senators and state senators and governors and PTA leaders, man, do our PTA leaders need prayer. What do we pray for? How do we pray for them? We pray for their salvation. We pray for the fear of the Lord. We pray for conviction. We pray for wisdom. Pray that they would seek wise counsel and listen to wise counsel, that they would be surrounded by, by Christians. These are good prayers. And so you pray for them, you pray for their salvation, but there's also a consequence to that. For the kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So remember, coming off the heels of the battle imagery, we don't seek out war. We're not bloodthirsty. We don't seek out conflict. We pray for and we hope for peaceful lives. So we think about a peaceful and quiet, um, literally well-ordered life. So is this a contradiction? Because last week, Tim, you made me feel like a Christian soldier and I wanted to go out to battle. We were talking about waging warfare and we're not hippies and all that stuff. And now it kind of sounds a bit like we're hippies. You live this peaceful and quiet life. Is that a contradiction? Or do they live in coexistence? Because externally, peace and quiet is the ideal. Praise the Lord for peace and quiet. Praise the Lord for unity. We aim to live in external peace because we have the internal peace of Philippians 4. We don't seek out fights. We don't have to be crusaders taking back what someone stole from God as if we need to stand up to a bully for God. We do fight. This is our sword. This is our battle in the spiritual realm on every side. We may live in a peaceful nation where we gather freely, yet we are at spiritual war every day. Yes, these two things do work in coexistence. We do fight with this word, but we do it with gentleness and respect. And this is not self-serving complacency. The Christian, you know, the American Christian retirement plan is I can't wait till I'm done working so I can just sit on the couch for the rest of my life. We want peace and quiet. Why? Because we can do this. Remember, this is in the context of the gathered church. We can come together. We have freedom. Praise the Lord for peace and quiet. Praise the Lord that there are not chains on the doors of the church and there are not men with automatic rifles standing outside stopping us from worshiping. That is by God's grace. That is why we pray for our leaders because we can gather in prayer. We can gather around the preaching of the word of God. We can gather around the reading of the the scriptures. And the Lord works in persecution and he works in, in freedom. But praise God for freedom. And in this, 
We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are exiles. This language is all throughout Scripture. We are to be model citizens. We are to pray for our leaders. We are to pray for the, the, the peace of where we are. Look at Jeremiah 29. And no, we're not going to Jeremiah 29 11. There are other verses in Jeremiah. Just in case you were wondering. Starting in verse 4. Israel sinned, cast out of Jerusalem. I mean, the Judea sinned. They're cast out of Jerusalem. They're sent to Babylon. What do they do while they're in Babylon? If you were in our intercessory prayer earlier, I read from 1 Peter. 1 Peter says, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We have been brought out of Egypt. We are headed to Canaan, but we're not there yet. So kind of wandering around in a place that's not our home. What do you do when you're in a place that's not your home? Look how the Lord instructs Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles who have been sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. What, you mean we don't have to live in a, in, in a cave? And No. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Enjoy what God has given you. You can actually enjoy where you are. You're going to be there for a little while, 70 years to be precise. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage, and they will bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Notice, if you live here, God sent you here. You're not here by accident. He has placed you here. And so we seek the welfare of where we are. We pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This world is not our inheritance. This world is not our final home. But we do live here. And so we should be good citizens. We should pay taxes and vote and pray for our leaders and be kind to our neighbors and pray for them. Lift them up before the Lord so that the Lord blesses where we are. So this life, this peaceful and quiet life, what defines it? One external quality and one internal quality. Godliness and dignity. This is, uh, these are kind of synonyms for the Hebrew idea of holiness and righteousness. Godliness is this, this internal commitment of the heart to the things of God. Dignity is this external uprightness. That the godliness that is within you becomes an, an external way of life. The righteousness, the holiness that you have in your God affects your thoughts, your affections, your actions in every way. Same Greek word, pos. In all ways. This all means all. Every way, without exception. We are to walk in godliness and dignity. Righteousness and holiness. We must define our alls. It's not just some of the time. This is what we are called to. This all means all. And that all, verse 3, is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Let's just take a moment and praise God for life of peace and quiet. Those who live godly lives in righteousness and prayerfully dependent on the Lord, that is a good thing. Our God gives good, good gifts. I think 
some of us tend to struggle and think that God always wants me to be miserable and suffering and wrestling with my, my sin and discontent. God is good. And he gives us good things. And he gives us rest. And he gives us peace. We still live, as crazy as our times are, we still live in one of the most peaceful eras and peaceful places in all of history. And God has put us here. What a good thing. Don't breeze over this. And thank the Lord that we have freedom to worship. And thank the Lord we can do this week after week. This is good. It's not just some ethereal good or something disconnected from good. It is good because it is pleasing in the sight of God. Any true good is what pleases God. But in addition, leading up to the rest of this passage, a peaceful and quiet life, a life of godliness and dignity, it is the perfect ground for the harvest. It serves as a great witness. This peaceful life, it prepares the soil for the harvest. Let's think about this for the moment. When you desire to share the gospel, you pray about sharing the gospel, prayer tills the soil. One of the prayers I have before I meet with an unbeliever or a believer in sin, I ask the Holy Spirit to prepare the soil. There's going to be no fruit to my work if the Lord is not going before me. We pray so that the, the, the soil will be tilled. We share the gospel. We speak words so that seeds are sown. We disciple, we reinforce, we follow up, we water. Why do we do all these things? Because our God is a good farmer. Because if there is any growth, if you've ever gardened anything, you can put it in the ground, you can water it, you can fertilize it, but nothing comes, you can't force it to grow unless some power outside of yourself pops this little green thing out of the ground. But we get to be a part of the harvest in the work. This is a good thing, and it's pleasing to God. So why must all this be stated? About the quiet and the righteousness and the dignity because what type of witness do you have if you're constantly fighting? If you're constantly arguing, if you're constantly complaining, if you live like everyone else, if you talk like everyone else, you do the same things they do, you use the same words they do, you go to the same places they do, you worship at the same football team they do, you drink the same amount they do. What type of witness do you have if you're the one at home cursing at your TV all day, and then you get an opportunity to, to witness to the gospel, and all you can talk about is the person on TV that you're upset about, what kind of witness do you have? What type of witness do you have before a leader? If you are brought before leaders, and you hate them, you refuse to pray for them, what type of witness do you have? Paul is saying our concern is for their souls, Paul was not funding the election campaign of Nero's, uh, you know, whoever's opposing Nero. He's praying for their souls, that they would be witnesses in this. Why? Because it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That is who he is. 
That is his very nature. Our God is creator. Our God is redeemer. That never changes. And so we can do these things because our God saves. This should always be in our mind. And so Christians are given a duty in line with our theology. We pray for and we seek the salvation of all, especially those in leadership. Why? Because whether you like them or not, God put them there. Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Sometimes we think, even though their outward actions are opposed to God, we act like God has nothing to do with it. As out of their minds as they may be, God put them there. So we pray for them. So we witness to them. All right, now let's get to the fun part. Uh, let's see how much time we got. All right, verse four. I told you that I was not going to get through all seven verses today. Um, verse four. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, this has caused a lot of people agita. Do you, do you know that word? So if you're Italian, what happens, you eat too much pasta, and all of the acid comes up into your stomach. The, most of you would say heartburn. We say agita. When people read this, it causes them heartburn. Well, God wants all people to be saved. So now we got to talk about it. Now we got to define our terms. So let's go word by word. Don't forget anything that I just said. Some of you even, some of you are on the other side. You read my, my title this morning. It's like, oh, he's not, he's not turned there, is he? Um, so, who God our Savior desires. He desires for all to be saved. Let's talk about God's desire. Let me help you out a little bit. God tells us his desires. He does not tell us his plans. Do you think God takes joy in destroying his creation? It doesn't bring him pleasure. He tells us this. Uh, look at Exodus 33, not Exodus, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, wicked Israel again, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, I swear by myself, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What's God's concern? That the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? If you want more on that, chapter 18, it deals with the whole thing. But the Lord desires repentance from all people. Same phrase again, pos, anthropos, all people. So let's talk about that. Remember, we already talked about in that day, many prejudices existed. Some did not. The Jews did not want the Gentiles to be saved. Some people did not want the higher social classes or the lower social classes to receive the gospel. There was this division. And so when we define our alls, think in the same terms. Just like we can't be expected to pray, pray for every person in every place, anthropos is a general word. It means men, mankind, peoples. So like we said before, it can't mean without exception because some go to hell. Now, we'll get there in salvation in just a moment. Let me just get to alls. But it must mean without distinction. So, some of you are maybe lost a little bit. Let's define all. 
Let's all go to lunch. Define our all. Does it mean all the congregation? All of Sanford? All the first three rows? If one of you doesn't come, have we all still gone to lunch? What if I sit up here in the front row and just say, let's all go to lunch? You are now not part of the all. We must define our alls. What if you say, I ate all the cookies? All the cookies? Some of you want to eat all the cookies. Don't ever eat all the cookies. But we must define our alls. So when, when, when Paul says pray for all people, and you're not faithful unless you've prayed for every person from the beginning of, the, for, of uh, creation, he desires all people to be saved. Is there a similar meaning using a similar phrase? Here's another thing. When we define people, is this peoples or individuals? Is this all of mankind, for God so loved the world, or is it every individual in every place? Do we really... We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> so much I want to say here. Here's also what we need to understand. The same words can be true for us in our limited understanding as they are for God in his perfect understanding. For us, all means anyone I come into contact with, anyone, anywhere who has the opportunity, we hope that they are saved. To God, he knows the all who he created. He knows the all that he elected. He knows the all that will repent and believe. But I think we try to put ourselves in a place of God. I love uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7. We're given limited eyes. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, when we are thinking about salvation, we're thinking about witnessing to people, we only see the looks on their faces, the response that they have. We can only meet so many people in a day and in a lifetime. God knows every human heart of every person he has ever created. And so I think some people struggle with this. It gives them ajada because they are trying to put their little pea brains in the mind of God. And so this is not a time for us to try and force our way into the secret mind of God. As far as we're concerned, everyone should be prayed for. Everyone has potential for salvation in Christ. And we are to show no partiality against the rich, the poor, the powerful, the weak. In other words, stay in your lane. Why the big deal? Well, when the Apostle Paul was writing 2,000 years ago, he had no idea about the Calvinism and Arminianism debate that would happen 1,500 years later. The theological hindsight we have caused us to look back in Scripture like an elitist and try to pick through all these details. What is the point? Why is Paul saying this? He's trying to encourage a missionally-minded church. Preach the gospel to everyone. Pray for everyone because God desires all people of every race, of every color, of every creed, of every nationality to come to him. So you don't make distinction based on what you see. You can only see with your eyes. He sees the heart. Go out as people who want the lost to be saved. That's Paul's concern when he says all peoples. Yet 
theological eggheads love to, love to hold on to these things and wrestle with them and stay in a room staring at books for hours and never even talking to a lost person. You completely missed the point. So now let's get to be saved. <laughs> he desires all people from all places to be saved. Isaiah 45, 22. He's been promising this all along. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Why? Because all people are sinners. I don't care your, your, your height, your status, your bank account. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you're still not with me and you're still insisting, well, God, well, this means all people as in every person everywhere. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Is God unable or unwilling to do what he desires? It must be one or the other. Let me say that again. If all people means that everyone, everywhere, God desires indiscriminately to be saved, and we know no, no Christian honestly would be a universalist and say that everyone goes to heaven. So if we know that some people go to hell, the problem is with God. I just have to ask you, which one is it? Is he unable or unwilling to do what he desires? Certainly that is not the case. Again, God tells us his desires. He does not tell us his plans, and he's not obligated to. And so if we don't know, we leave the job to him. As Bodhi says, God is not running for God. Uh, he's already got the office, and it's his forever. Just like we won't say that God can't save or won't save a particular people group, or type of person, we also won't say that God will save everyone. But from his purview, he knows who will be saved. From ours, we don't. This is the difference between the general and the effective, effectual call. A lot of guys are like, why do we go through all these, these theologies? Let me help you here. The general call, Jesus said, for many will be called and few are chosen. The general call goes out to everyone. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. All of you heard that. The effectual call is those who hear it and come. Which all is it? All who hear it or all who come? Yes. From our perspective, it's always the general call. But from God's perspective, he knows hearts. And so he knows the effectual call. You see? Is this helpful at all? Hopefully. Hopefully. This is that apparent contradiction we talked about, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So, why do we pray for all people? Why do we witness to all people? Because our God desires people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation to be saved. And from our purview, all means all, without distinction. Even though from God's purview, he knows all who he's predestined to save. And we hold both of those in complete agreement. Amen? So, as long as we are here, he's still working. He's still saving. He's still calling people. He's still calling us to pray and to desire salvation. Every person that is breathing deserves to have the salvation of Jesus Christ presented to them. And from our purview, everyone is equally capable of of responding. One of our 
members who's back up north said, we don't have an elect detector. No, we don't. You're not walking around saying, is, are you the one that, that, that God chose or not? That's not for us. God has us as ambassadors. We want everyone that we witness to and pray for to be saved. Yet God will save everyone he's elected. And both are true. And here's where we end. Who desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is the truth that sets you free. It is the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he who justifies also sanctifies. He who sanctifies also glorifies. Jesus sanctified that we, or excuse me, prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. In his high priestly prayer, John 17. What is this truth? Next week, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the truth. This is the message. This is the hope. Consistent throughout the Bible, consistent throughout the book. Jesus, the God-man, from all eternity, he is God the Savior. And to accomplish salvation, he takes on flesh and walks among us. He was the final sacrifice so he could be the final mediator. In his paying for sin, he must put it to death. He did it on a cross. He died. He was buried three days so there was no confusion. He rose again to show that death could not hold him. That all who believe in him would rise to new life again. And he ascended on high. Next week we're going to spend a lot of time in this. To be a mediator. This is the truth. Christ Jesus the Lord is sitting at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. And he ever lives to intercede for us. That is why we pray. That is how we pray. And so when we speak and we preach, how could we give any other name than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? So let's conclude briefly, bring all this together. Remember, Paul is writing to a leader of a local church. He's writing them to strengthen the body. The church gathering should be marked by sound doctrine and unity and prayer through one mediator and, and driven by a truth that leads to one true Savior. And that Every member is equal before the throne. And with that, all peoples are welcome to join when they come to the knowledge of the truth. And we get to play a role in that by praying for and proclaiming his good work, the work of God our Savior. So, even if Christ's atonement is limited, our prayer, our preaching, our evangelism, and our missions cannot be. Let me say that again. Even though Christ's atonement is limited, our prayer and our evangelism and our preaching and our missions cannot be. All this all Christians can agree on. There is a free offer of salvation to all people, to presidents and to peasants. And who will respond and who are saved, are ultimately that is ultimately up to God, and we can rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with our supplications. There are many requests in this room. There are many pains and hurts. and uh, We know that we have no hope, have no 
audience before you without Jesus Christ. We ask that you answer the prayers of your saints, that you, but also that you teach us how to pray. Give us fervency and, and consistency in prayer. There are also intercessions here this morning. Every believer has someone in their life who is lost, who is struggling, who is hurting. Help us, teach us to intercede on their behalf and also help us to be grateful. That we'd be thankful for our salvation, that we'd be thankful for our freedom, that we'd be thankful for peace and quiet. Praise the Lord. But also that we would pray for all those in authority. Pray for President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris. Lord, would you bring them to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord? Would you call them into repentance? Would you surround them with godly counselors? I also lift up our senators, national and state, congressmen, governors, local leaders. Lord, bring believers into these realms. Change their hearts. Change their, their, their minds. May you be glorified in their lives. May you be glorified in our nation. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are under tyranny, who hate Christians, who are in prison, who are persecuted, who are afflicted for the name of Jesus Christ. Comfort them. Hear their prayers, Lord. Free them that they may proclaim the excellencies of your salvation, that your good news would go to every country and city on the globe, and that your people would be faithful until Christ returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.